And if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, this morning, verses 9 through 14. As here, uh, Matthew continues a theme of Sabbath rest and worship that he began for us uh, back at verse 1 of this chapter, and really at the end of chapter 11. In those uh, verses last week, we saw that Jesus claims the right to explain the proper use of the Sabbath. He says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And uh, elsewhere, and we remembered this last week, that Jesus tells us the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It was made to be a blessing for us, not for us to be a slave to it, not for it to be a burden to us, but to give us rest. So that when we come to Jesus for rest, we find a part of that rest is provision of care for our body and soul, for our physical and spiritual and everlasting life through, uh, through this concept of Sabbath and rest. And uh, so last week we saw Jesus was walking uh, in the grain fields with his disciples. This morning we see him enter a synagogue. Last week we saw the Pharisees religious leaders, upset with him that his disciples plucked grain and ate it because they were hungry. This morning we see the Pharisees upset with him because a deformed man is healed. In both cases, the Pharisees said, you're doing forbidden work on the Sabbath. It is ungodly, it is unlawful, it is sinful, it is wrong. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Works of necessity, works of piety, works of mercy. These are all good and proper. So this morning we want to learn here from Jesus' Sabbath practice. And we also want to take caution uh, by the error of these religious Pharisees. Let me invite you to consider these things from Matthew chapter 12 beginning at verse 9. This is the word of God. He went on from there and entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, grant that your word would be a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. And we pray that you would help us to hear you, to learn of you, to see Jesus, and so be transformed by the renewing of our minds after the likeness of Jesus. Do that work, we pray, that only you can do by your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. 
Amen. <clears throat> Amen. Uh, man is sleeping and the alarm sounds and he hits it to snooze. And he does it again. And he does it again. And after a while, his wife taps him on the shoulder and says, it's time to get up. He groans, it's so early. And he says, let me sleep. She shakes him and says, we have to go. It's, it's time to get ready. For what? For church, she says. And he responds, ah, Sunday again. <laughs> I think I'll stay home. She says, you can't. He says, I want to. And she says, but you have to be there. And he says, why? And she says, because you're the pastor. <laughs> Some of you saw that coming. Yeah. Ever feel like a pastor on a Sunday morning? That pastor. Just not in the mood, wanting to sleep a while, wanting to do something else, even anything else, except go to church. You know, at some time or another, I think if we're honest, we perhaps have all felt like that. But we don't worship the Lord, of course, because we have the right feelings uh, when the alarm goes off in the morning. We worship him because he calls us to do so and because he loves us and has grace for us and because, because of that grace, we've begun to love him. Those motives are much stronger than how we feel when, when we're waking up, which is why I think I'm preaching to the choir this morning. I mean, what got you here? So what do we learn from Jesus when he goes to church? That's the question this morning. And I want you to see four things. You see his practice at verse 9, his pattern. You see the Pharisees' question at verse 10. Then you see his answer with mercy at verses 11 to 13. And then you see their hatred at verse 14. And we want to think about these things this morning. In the first place, at verse 9, we want to see that the corporate public worship participation of Jesus is a pattern for us. Notice verse 9, that, well, verses 1 to 8, his disciples were with him, you remember this, they had walked with him uh, together in the grain field, spending time together. We said last week, that's sort of the Sabbath ideal, walking and talking with God on the day he set apart for it. We have extra time to fellowship with him and his people. Now the focus turns away from the disciples eating to Jesus' ministry in the synagogue. Verse 9, he went on from there and entered the synagogue. This is not the temple, of course, the place of worship and sacrifice, which was in Jerusalem, and there was only one of those, but this is the synagogue that was scattered among the people wherever they lived, uh, and it was they were places of worship without the sacrifices, but places where you could hear the Bible or the Old Testament, the prophets and law that they had read and taught, where you could sing with the saints and pray, and where you could have community gatherings of believers for fellowship. They were forerunners in many ways to Christian churches. So it's the Sabbath, and Jesus steps into one of these. He didn't skip. He didn't make excuses. He didn't say, I don't feel like it, or it takes too much effort, or my shirt isn't ironed. He didn't behave as though as he had a right to disregard God's command. And his pattern of life is an example for us. Unless we're providentially hindered, like when we're sick, or we're caring for somebody who's sick, and they 
need us to be there with them, then we stay home, of course. Please stay home if you're sick. But otherwise, God says, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And so we say to one another with the psalmist, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let's together kneel before the Lord our maker. Uh, we are the sheep of his pasture. And Hebrews chapter 10 tells us, verse 24, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. But we might be tempted to say, okay, so Jesus went, and you're saying we ought to go, but, you know, it was easy for Jesus. It's a lot harder for me. I mean, after all, he's God in the flesh. I mean, wasn't that just something, of course, that would be easy for him to do? And we're not that. When we have the weakness of the flesh, and I get that, but I would say to us, you know, actually his temptation to not participate in the public corporate worship of God was was much stronger than your temptation not to participate. Why do I say that? Because while undoubtedly there were some godly priests and Levites and elders leading worship and governing the synagogue, they were certainly deeply flawed, and he knew it. He knew them better than they knew themselves. And then there were plenty, as we're seeing even in this passage, plenty who were ungodly and impious and full of doctrinal ignorance and error. And can you imagine being the God who wrote the Bible, going into the synagogue to hear fallen people read it, sometimes people who didn't even believe it, let alone then try to explain it. But that didn't keep him from coming week after week. Now, I'm not saying you should stay in a church that's apostatized from the gospel. Find one that believes. And and here we do. We believe, Lord, help our unbelief. But what about us? I mean, you may not get along with every pastor or every elder or every deacon every Sunday school teacher that you have, or every brother and sister in your church. You may not click with their personality. You may clearly see their shortcomings. You may disagree with their approach to ministry, struggle with their apparent immaturity, and be certain that they are wrong about something that matters. And all that may be true. But it didn't keep Jesus from participating, and it shouldn't keep you. It raises a question, of course. Some of you have asked me that this week. I invited you to send me some questions. And some of you asked, you know, if Jesus went to church on Saturday, is that what you're saying we should do? The Sabbath was the end of the week. Why do Christians gather on Sunday and the day that the Apostle John calls in Revelation 1, the Lord's Day. Why do we do that? And I just want to walk you through just a, briefly a, a bit of why we do. It, it's not because it's just a day that's different from unbelieving Jews and we want to be different. And no, nobody in the early church you know, grabbed a dart and threw it at a calendar to see, well, what day should we meet? Uh, and it's not happenstance. Is there any rhyme or reason to it at all? And the answer is uh, that God has changed the day that he appointed a a different day. And Jesus and the apostles set a new pattern for us. And I I want you to hear some of this uh, because I think for some of you it will will strengthen your conscience 
or it will, it will refashion your conscience in a way where you can say, uh, Lord, let me do what you want me to do. It was on the first day of the week that Jesus rose from the dead. And in John chapter 20, if you want to turn there, you can or listen. John 20 verses 19 to 23, he met with his disciples on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. And there he blessed them and he gave them his peace and he commissioned them to serve him and he poured out the Holy Spirit upon them all on the first day of the week. And that timing was no accident or happenstance. Of course it was on the day of resurrection. But is this going to be a pattern? Well, John chapter 20, verse 26, just further down. Eight days later, it says, and meaning the next Sunday. Now, why eight days meaning the next Sunday? Well, because the Jews counted their days inclusively. So... He started with the day that you were on, and because it was evening as he's writing this to us, of the evening of, of Sunday, you count Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, eight quote-unquote days later. You have the same thing with Jesus, like Jonah, being in the belly of the earth uh, three days and rising. And, and some of us would say, but he died on a Friday, and then you go to Saturday, and then Sunday, that's two days, but not the way they counted Friday is one, Saturday is one, Sunday is one. Well, the point is this. So it's, it's Sunday again, the first day of the week. And Jesus once again appears to them and meets with his disciples. Not on Saturday, when he quite easily could have chosen to do so. But the Lord's Day. And he blesses them and he gives them his peace. And he receives their worship as they call him Lord and God. And then what we find as you read the rest of the New Testament is that the apostles perpetuated this. In Luke chapter 20, verse 7, we know that he says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked. What were they doing? They were observing the Lord's Supper together, and, and Paul preached to them. And so it's not surprising then when you get to 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 to 4, uh, about the collection, he says to the Corinthian Christians, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Why the first day of the week? Because he knows that they're going to be together, and so they can safely hand off to the deacons and treasurer that which they're committing to the work of the Lord. And so it is that for the last 2,000 years, Christians have gathered on the day of resurrection, uh, ordinarily uh, meeting on Sunday. We're free to meet other days as well. We could gather every day of the week if we pleased. But it was the practice of the early church to make their public corporate worship assembly uh, after the pattern of Jesus and the apostles. And uh, your liner notes have more on this, but just so you hear, the, one of the earliest Christian writings we know of outside of the apostolic writings, the Didache, uh, notes written in the first century, but every Lord's Day, that Sunday, gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanks, having confessed your transgressions, all of which we will do on this Lord's Day. And Justin Martyr 
in 150 AD uh, said this about the early Christians. On the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gathered together in one place. And the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets, that's your New Testament and your Old Testament, are read. He goes on to say, Sunday is the day on which we hold our common assembly because it is the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter and made the world, and Jesus Christ our Savior on the same day rose from the dead. So uh, the point is simply this, that throughout the early church, the medieval church, among the Protestant reformers, even throughout the world today, believers meet ordinarily and typically, aside from some very small exceptions among Seventh-day Adventists and Seventh-day Baptists and Messianic Jews on Sunday. Why is that? It, it didn't just happen. The Westminster Confession of Faith calls this Lord's Day the Christian Sabbath, not the Jewish Sabbath. And the Jewish Sabbath had all kinds of ceremonial aspects and judicial penalties associated with breaking it. But the Christian Sabbath, in distinction from that, and in keeping with God's creation pattern of making the world in six days and he himself resting on the seventh, and then in his redemption pattern of raising Jesus from the dead on the first day and meeting with his people. That pattern of Jesus then is to be our pattern even though the day he changed. But even as I say all of that, and you may have more questions about that, and I'd invite those. Uh, you have lots of questions about what we're supposed to do on the day, and there's a lot of disagreement among believers, and I understand that too. So before we go further, just as we close out point one, which is the longest point, I want us all to take a deep breath. Take a deep breath. And remember, he gave it as not a burden, but a blessing. It will be a burden to you, however, if you think that getting it right, not only the day but what you do, will make God love you or keep God loving you. And that is the opposite of the gospel. Because the gospel is that God loves you and sent his son and Jesus worked and Sabbathed and rested for you in all the ways humanity ought because you haven't. And we said this last week, you know, if he broke the Sabbath, then he's a sinner dying on the cross for his own sins and he can't die for you. But he didn't break the Sabbath, he kept it and his obedience is our righteousness. Like with any of the Ten Commandments, we'd like to say that we keep them, but the truth is we need our Savior because we don't. Our obedience is always inexact, always insufficient, but because of the work of Jesus is perfect and sufficient, all who trust in him are counted righteous with God. So what I'm saying is don't carry a heavy burden too great for you. Jesus said his burden is light. And don't put a heavy burden on the backs of others. The Sabbath keeping of Jesus, not our Sabbath keeping, is our hope of salvation. Now, how should the day be spent? Well, notice here at verse 10 the, the way the Pharisees think it ought to be spent. The legalistic hard-heartedness 
which is a warning to us. Verse 10, a man was there with a withered hand and they asked Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Why did they ask that question? So that they might accuse him, Matthew tells you. Look, nobody in the synagogue that day was dying that we know of, but but there was a man with a disability. His right hand was withered. It didn't function. And the Pharisees wanted it to stay that way. And Jesus intended to heal him. Now, why are they against healing on this Sabbath day? Because for them, healing was considered a work forbidden on the Sabbath unless a person was dying. And then under their own rules, of course, you could help somebody who was actually dying. But otherwise, their attitude was, this guy with the withered hand, he can wait till tomorrow. And Jesus says, it's okay to do it today. Now, where did they get this view? How did they come to this conclusion that it would be so bad to heal the man? Well, um, perhaps you know that if you add up all the commandments given in the Old Testament, which the Jews had done, they, they concluded there were 613 commands of God in the Old Testament. And then in their teaching, which they accumulated, they added man-made teachers' laws and regulations to those things about not working on the Sabbath. And their teachers concluded that there are 39 categories of work that are forbidden because the command is don't work, you must rest. What work was forbidden? Here are the 39 categories. Carrying, we mentioned that last week. Burning and extinguishing. Finishing, writing and erasing. Cooking, washing, sewing, tearing, knotting, untying, shaping, plowing, planting, reaping, harvesting, threshing, winnowing, selecting, sifting, grinding, kneading, combing, spinning, dyeing, chain stitching, warping, weaving, unraveling, building, demolishing, trapping, shearing, slaughtering, skinning, tanning, smoothing, and marking. And you say, I don't know what most of that stuff means. What are you talking about? Well, 39 categories of the work you must not do. And then you understand within each category, they had rules. You can do this, but not that. So just some categorical uh, examples here. What was forbidden? No burning, which meant you couldn't strike a match or light a fire or even down to our own day, turn on a stove. And because an automobile engine works by burning gasoline, some Jews don't drive a car on the Sabbath. Or turn on a light because a filament gets heated producing light. Extinguishing is the opposite of burning, so you can't turn off lights if they're on or other electrical appliances. Uh, Finishing was also a work forbidden. You couldn't complete certain things. You couldn't repair things. You actually also, in our day, this comes down through Jewish leadership, they forbid cutting or tearing paper, not even toilet paper on the Sabbath. Some Jews pre- use pre-cut, pre-torn toilet paper. Selecting was forbidden. What's selecting? Well, here's an example. You can't separate unwanted portions of food. For example, if you're eating berries, you may not pick out the bad ones before eating the good ones. You can, however, eat the good ones and leave the bad ones. 
So to make sure they didn't violate the Sabbath, they thought of all kinds of ways you could violate the Sabbath and then avoided those activities and that became their law, which they imposed severely upon the people. Their law, not God's law. And this is the point you have to see, that they were legalists and they ended up weighing people down with all kinds of extra-biblical regulations about Sabbath. And so it wasn't a day of delight for people. It became a a heavy burden. And I'll just say to us, we need to be careful, really careful, that we don't become Pharisees about what we don't do on the Sabbath and tell others they must not do. We have to be careful about that. They've got all these added rules. And so back to the text, this is why, okay, they didn't think Jesus should do this. Because they said healing was work and you could only do it in life and death circumstances. Otherwise, it needs to wait. And what I want you to see is that this is not some new principle at work in the hearts of people. And they are not that odd. Do you understand that when you go back to Genesis and you read the story of Adam and Eve, this is exactly what they did in the garden. Do you remember in Genesis 2 when God commanded Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? He he could eat of anything but one thing, which was a test. Will you live as my son in my house under my roof in accordance with my wisdom? And what did God command? He said, don't eat of it. And then in Genesis 3, the devil asked her, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And how did she respond? She said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit that is of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Do you hear what she did? She stretched God's command. She increased it. She added to it. She said, we can't eat of it. That's true. And we can't even touch it. And that wasn't true. Did God say she couldn't touch it? No. As my Old Testament professor said, they could have gone bowling with that fruit. But she and Adam, uh, or perhaps Adam himself taught her the command incorrectly, or at the very least, he didn't correct her as they're standing there in front of the devil. And they made the command more than it was. And in doing so, why is that so bad? They were making God more exacting than even God is, and more restrictive than God is. They were warping the character and generosity of God, and we have been doing that as people ever since, and the Pharisees are a great example of it. Adding human traditions and interpretations and then enforcing them severely. And so they want to tempt Jesus to heal this man so that, why? He'll break their commands so that they can say he broke God's commands so they could accuse him, indict him, punish him, and get rid of him. And so just pause there and reflect. Beware, you who are religious, Christian even. Beware of adding your own rules to God's rules, God's rules, of making God stricter than he is. Beware of a religious impulse seeking to catch people doing wrong or what you think is wrong 
and then treating them severely for it. Beware of a religious heart that condemns others when they take a position different than you about something God has not commanded nor forbidden. I mean, look, some issues are black and white. You shall not commit murder. And the command is clear. But some issues are wisdom issues and conscience issues. They're issues of God's providence and prudence about which Christians can disagree with one another as we live our lives before the face of God. And that is really hard to live out and hold to as a conviction because there are some things we get so convinced of about ourselves that this is the only way to live, that this is the only way to obey God. The only way to love God or love others. And we can't imagine how anybody else could draw a different conclusion or take a different approach. Issues of food and drink. Issues of parenting, public school, private school, homeschool. Issues of political parties and ideologies. And yes, issues of medical care and preventative strategies and treatment strategies, which you should consult a doctor for, but not church authorities. Mercifully, God leaves many things to you to work out before him, and he leaves children, your parents, in charge of you for now. And what church leaders and authorities must not do is become Pharisees about their own preferred rules as if God has commanded or hasn't commanded in ways that he has not. And what Christian uh, brothers and sisters must do, which is what we must all do with one another personally, is bear with one another in love and be patient and kind toward one another where we disagree, unlike the Pharisees. And so then, more quickly... What do we see? How does Jesus respond? Notice his mercy to people. And it's our example, verses 11 and 12. He cuts to the heart of the matter, verse 11. Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Is that work? Sure it is. But we don't let the animal suffer because it's the Sabbath. We don't pat it on the head and say, I'll be back tomorrow. Right? You lift it out. Why, even the Pharisees agreed with that. Animals matter, in this case, more than the ceremonial law-keeping. So then what does Jesus do? Well, he hits them upside the head with his next statement. He elevates the discussion. How much more, verse 12, of value is a man than a sheep? You see his point in God's economy? People matter more than animals if you'll you'll help and be merciful to the animal. And you can help and be merciful to people because they are more valuable. And I think the Pharisees were saying something like, hmm, I just don't really know about that. They didn't agree. They got angry. They wanted to kill him. And I just want to say, you'll find that attitude in and outside of the church. It's in religious people, it's in Christian people, and it's in the world. But do you know your value? Do you know your value? Jesus says you're more valuable than animals. You're not an animal. You're made in the image of God. Jesus once said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet, 
he says, not one of them will fall to the ground, but by your Father in heaven. And even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore you are of more value than many sparrows. How valuable? God became man and died for you. Do you know your value? And so he says, people are more valuable than, than these animals. Therefore, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, to show them mercy and help. It's lawful to heal, absolutely. It's lawful to help, of course. You Pharisees, he says, think the Sabbath is about all the things you don't do so you can justify yourself in the eyes of God. And Jesus says, do good, love people. Show mercy. Not to be justified, but because you are justified, apart from your works. And so we must beware of being so committed to what we think are our religious duties that we overlook people who need us to help them. That we ought not pit our responsibilities to love God, the first table of law, the first four commandments, against our responsibility to love our neighbor, the second table of the law, the last of the commandments. Jesus says, love the people, that is loving God. Show mercy. And so he calls us to be merciful. And the last thing is this response of the Pharisees, verse 14. Well, he says to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out, restored healthy like the other. And I would hope we would say, wow, who is this man? The glory of God, the power of God, the kindness of God. And they say, what? Well, they start talking to themselves. How can we get rid of this guy? The irony here, right? They're so concerned about Jesus breaking the fourth commandment in their view that they go out and break the sixth commandment in their heart of hearts contemplating murder. <laughs> and what a warning that is to all of us. Because it's easy to criticize, easy to condemn, easy to be sure you're right and others are wrong, and at the same time to be wrong and unmerciful in yourself. And don't you find that in your own heart and life? That you aren't nearly as merciful as Jesus is? That you're reluctant to be helpful? That you have no feelings of care at times? That you turn a cold heart to others? And haven't you, though, found in Jesus, one who is merciful. Where do you get mercy? Where do you get becoming more merciful? You've got to go to him with your unmercifulness and say, forgive me, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And he will, he does, he delights to show mercy. He forgives your sin, it softens your heart, it makes you more tender towards others and his spirit in you can over time. More and more, make us like him. Want to be more merciful? Go to Jesus to be mercied. And mercifully, today, the Lord's day, is a perfect day to do that. And so to find rest for your soul. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the kindness, tenderheartedness, 
compassion, power of Jesus. And we pray that you would help us to entrust the, soul of our, the care of our soul with him and, uh, and then to be more like him in love towards others. Forgive us, Father. Uh, we've all got this wrong in various ways. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.